This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Donald Buckley, and it runs one hour, eight minutes. And we'll be discussing it with the director of the movie version, DeFarba, afterwards. The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft West of Arkham, the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There are dark, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically, and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentler slopes there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-coated cottages brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the leaves of great ledges. But these are all vacant now, the wide chimneys crumbling and the shingle sides bulging perilously beneath low gambrel roofs. The old folk have gone away, and foreigners do not like to live there. French Canadians have tried it, Italians have tried it, and the Poles have come and departed. It is not because of anything that can be seen or heard or handled, but because of something that is imagined. The place is not good for the imagination, and does not bring restful dreams at night. It must be this which keeps the old foreigners away, for old Amy Pierce has never told them of anything he recalls from the strange days. Amy, whose head has been a little queer for years, is the only one who still remains, or whoever talks of the strange days and he dares to do this because his house is so near the open fields and the travelled roads around Arkham. There was once a road over the hills and through the valleys that ran straight where the blasted heath is now, but people ceased to use it and a new road was laid curving far out toward the south. Traces of the old one can still be found amidst the weeds of a returning wilderness, and some of them will doubtless linger even when half of the hollows are flooded for the new reservoir. Then the dark woods will be cut down, and the blasted heath will slumber far below blue waters, whose surface will mirror the sky and ripple in the sun, and the secrets of the strange days will be one with the deep secrets, one with the hidden lore of the old ocean, and all the mystery of primal earth. When I went into the hills and vales to survey for the new reservoir, they told me the place was evil. They told me this in Arkham, and because that is a very old town full of witch legends, I thought the evil must be something which grandams had whispered to children through centuries. The name Blasted Heath seemed to me very odd and theatrical, and I wondered how it had come into the folklore of a Puritan people. Then I saw that dark westward tangle of glens and slopes for myself, and ceased to wonder at anything besides its own elder mystery. It was morning when I saw it, but shadow lurked always there. The trees grew too thickly, and their trunks were too big for any healthy New England wood. There was too much silence in the dim alleys between them, and the floor was too soft with the dank moss and mattings of infinite years of decay. In the open spaces, mostly along the line of the old road, there were little hillside farms, sometimes with all the buildings standing, sometimes with only one or two, and sometimes with only a lone chimney or fast-filling cellar. Weeds and briars reigned, and furtive wild things rustled in the undergrowth. Upon everything was a haze of restlessness and oppression, 
a touch of the unreal and the grotesque, as if some vital element of perspective or chiaroscuro were awry. I did not wonder that the foreigners would not stay, for this was no region to sleep in. It was too much like a landscape of Salvatore Rosa, too much like some forbidden woodcut in a tale of terror. But even all this was not so bad as the blasted heath. I knew it the moment I came upon it, at the bottom of a spacious valley, for no other name could fit such a thing, or any other thing fit such a name. It was as if the poet had coined the phrase from having seen this one particular region. It must, I thought, as I viewed it, be the outcome of a fire. But why had nothing new ever grown over those five acres of grey desolation that sprawled open to the sky, like a great spot eaten by acid in the woods and fields. It lay largely to the north of the ancient road line, but encroaching a little on the other side. I felt an odd reluctance about approaching, and did so at last only because my business took me through and past it. There was no vegetation of any kind on that broad expanse, but only a fine grey dust or ash, which no wind ever seemed to blow about. The trees near it were sickly and stunted, and many dead trunks, stood or lay rotting at the rim. As I walked hurriedly by, I saw the tumbled bricks and stones of an old chimney and cellar on my right, and the yawning black maw of an abandoned well, whose stagnant vapours played strange tricks with the hues of the sunlight. Even the long dark woodland climb beyond seemed the welcome in contrast, and I marvelled no more at the frightened whispers of Arkham people. There had been no house or ruin near, even in the old days, the place must have been lonely and remote. And at twilight, dreading to repass that ominous spot, I walked circuitously back to the town by the curving road on the south. I vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for a nod timidity about the deep skyey voids above had crept into my soul. In the evening, I asked old people in Arkham about the blasted heath, and what was meant by that phrase, strange days, which so many evasively muttered. I could not, however, get any good answers, except that all the mystery was much more recent than I had dreamed. It was not a matter of old legendary at all, but something within the lifetime of those who spoke. It had happened in the eighties, and a family had disappeared or was killed. Speakers would not be exact, and because they all told me to pay no attention to old Amy Pierce's crazy tales, I sought him out the next morning, having heard that he lived alone in the ancient tottering cottage where the trees first began to get thick. It was a fearsomely archaic place, and had begun to exude the faint miasmal odour which clings about houses that have stood too long. Only with persistent knocking could I rouse the aged man, and when he shuffled timidly to the door, I could tell he was not glad to see me. He was not so feeble as I had expected, but his eyes drooped in a curious way, and his unkempt clothing and white beard made him seem very worn and dismal. Not knowing just how best he could be launched on his tales, I feigned a matter of business, told him of my surveying, and asked vague questions about the district. He was far brighter and more educated than I had been led to think, and before I knew it had grasped quite as much of the subject as any man I had talked with in Arkham. He was not like other rustics I had known in the sections where the reservoirs were to be. From him there were no protests at the miles of old wood and farmland to be blotted out, though perhaps there would have been had not his home lain outside the bounds of the future lake. Relief was all that he showed, relief at the doom of the dark ancient valleys through which he had roamed all his life. 
They were better underwater now, better underwater since the strange days. And with this opening, his husky voice sank low, while his body leaned forward, and his right forefinger began to point shakily and impressively. It was then that I heard the story, and as the rambling voice scraped and whispered on, I shivered again and again, despite the summer day. Often I had to recall the speaker from ramblings, pierce out scientific points which he knew only by a fading parrot memory of Professor's talk, or bridge over gaps where his sense of logic and continuity broke down. When he was done, I did not wonder that his mind had snapped a trifle, or that the folk of Arkham would not speak much of the blasted heath. I hurried back before sunset to my hotel, unwilling to have the stars come out above me in the open, and the next day returned to Boston to give up my position. I could not go into that dim chaos of old forest and slope again, or face another time that grey blasted heath where the black well yawned deep beside the tumbled bricks and stones. The reservoir would soon be built now, and all those elder secrets would be safe forever under watery fathoms. But even then, I do not believe I would like to visit that country by night. At least, not when the sinister stars are out, and nothing could bribe me to drink the new city water of Arkham. It all began, old Emmy said, with the meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials, and even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as the small island in the Miskatonic, where the devil held court, beside a curious stone altar older than the Indians. These were not haunted woods, and their fantastic dusk was never terrible till the strange days. Then there had come that white noontide cloud, that string of explosions in the air, and that pillar of smoke from the valley far in the wood. And by night all Arkham had heard of the great rock that fell out of the sky and bedded itself in the ground beside the well at the name Gardner Place. That was the house which had stood where the blasted heath was to come, the trim white name Gardner House, amidst its fertile gardens and orchards. Nahum had come to town to tell people about the stone, and had dropped in at Amy Pierce's on the way. Amy was forty then, and all the queer things were fixed very strongly in his mind. He and his wife had gone with the three professors from Miskatonic University, who hastened out the next morning to see the weird visitor from unknown stellar space, and had wondered why Nahum had called it so large the day before. It had shrunk, Nahum said, as he pointed out the big brownish mound above the ripped earth and charred grass near the archaic well-sweep in his front garden. But the wise men answered that stones do not shrink. Its heat lingered persistently, and Nahum declared it had glowed faintly in the night. The professors tried it with a geologist's hammer and found it was oddly soft. It was, in truth, so soft as to be almost plastic, and they gouged rather than chipped a specimen to take back to the college for testing. They took it in an old pail borrowed from Nahum's kitchen, for even the small piece refused to grow cool. On the trip back, they stopped at Amy's to rest, and seemed thoughtful when Mrs. Pierce remarked that the fragment was growing smaller and burning the bottom of the pail. Truly, it was not large, but perhaps they had taken less than they thought. The day after that, all of this was in June of 82, the professors had trooped out again in a great excitement. As they passed Amy's, they told him what queer things the specimen had done, and how it had faded wholly away when they put it in the glass beaker. The beaker had gone too, and all the wise men talked of the strange stone's affinity for silicon. It had acted quite unbelievably in that well-ordered laboratory, doing nothing at all, and showing no occluded gases when heated on charcoal, being wholly negative in the borax bead, 
and soon proving itself absolutely non-volatile in any producible temperature, including that of the oxyhydrogen blowpipe. On an anvil, it appeared highly malleable, and in the dark, its luminosity was very marked. Stubbornly refusing to grow cool, it soon had the college in a state of real excitement, and when, upon heating before the spectroscope, it displayed shining bands unlike any known colours of the normal spectrum, there was much breathless talk of new elements, bizarre optical properties, and other things which puzzled men of science, I want to say, when faced by the unknown. Hot as it was, they tested it in a crucible with all the proper reagents. Water did nothing. Hydrochloric acid was the same. Nitric acid and even aqua regia merely hissed and spattered against its torrid invulnerability. Amy had difficulty in recalling all these things, but recognised some solvents as I mentioned them in the usual order of use. There were ammonia and caustic soda, alcohol and ether, nauseous carbon disulfide and a dozen others. But although the weight grew steadily less as time passed, and the fragments seemed to be slightly cooling, there was no change in the solvents to show that they had attacked the substance at all. It was a metal, though, beyond a doubt. It was magnetic, for one thing, and after its immersion in the acid solvents, there seemed to be faint traces of the Widmanstatten figures found on meteoric iron. When the cooling had grown very considerable, the testing was carried on in glass, and it was in a glass beaker that they left all the chips made of the original fragment during the work. The next morning, both chips and beaker were gone without trace, and only a charred spot marked the place on the wooden shelf where they had been. All this the professors told Emmy as they paused at his door, and once more he went with them to see the stony messenger from the stars, though this time his wife did not accompany him. It had now most certainly shrunk, and even the sober professors could not doubt the truth of what they saw. All around the dwindling brown lump near the well was a vacant space, except where the earth had caved in, and whereas it had been a good seven feet across the day before, it was now scarcely five. It was still hot, and the sages studied its surface curiously as they detached another and larger piece with hammer and chisel. They gouged deeply this time, and as they prized away the smaller mass, they saw that the core of the thing was not quite homogeneous. They had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large coloured globule embedded in the substance. The colour, which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum, was almost impossible to describe, and it was only by analogy that they called it colour at all. Its texture was glossy, and upon tapping it appeared to promise both brittleness and hollowness. One of the professors gave it a smart blow with a hammer, and it burst with a nervous little pop. Nothing was emitted, and all trace of the thing vanished with the puncturing. It left behind a hollow spherical space about three inches across, and all thought it probable that others would be discovered as the enclosing substance wasted away. Conjecture was vain, so after a futile attempt to find additional globules by drilling, the seekers left again with their new specimen, which proved, however, as baffling in the laboratory as its predecessor had been. Aside from being almost plastic, having heat, magnetism, and slight luminosity, cooling slightly in powerful acids, possessing an unknown spectrum, wasting away on air, and attacking silicon compounds with mutual destruction as a result. It presented no identifying features whatsoever, and at the end of the tests, the college scientists were forced to warn that they could not place it. It was nothing of this earth, but a piece of the great outside, and as such, dowered with outside properties and obedient to outside laws. 
That night there was a thunderstorm, and when the professors went out to Nahum's the next day, they met with a bitter disappointment. The stone, magnetic as it had been, must have had some peculiar electrical property, for it had drawn the lightning, as Nahum said, with a singular persistence. Six times within an hour the farmer saw the lightning strike the furrow in the front yard, and when the storm was over nothing remained but a ragged pit by the ancient well-sweep, half choked with caved-in earth. Digging had borne no fruit, and the scientists verified the fact of the utter vanishment. The failure was total, so that nothing was left to do but go back to the laboratory and test again the disappearing fragment left carefully cased in lead. That fragment lasted a week, at the end of which nothing of value had been learned of it. When it had gone, no residue was left behind, and in time the professors felt scarcely sure they had indeed seen with waking eyes that cryptic vestige of the fathomless gulfs outside, that lone, weird message from other universes and other realms of matter, force, and entity. As was natural, the Arkham papers made much of the incident with its collegiate sponsoring, and sent reporters to talk with Nahum Gardner and his family. At least one Boston Daily also sent a scribe, and Nahum quickly became a kind of local celebrity. He was a lean, genial person of about fifty, living with his wife and three sons on the pleasant farmstead in the valley. He and Amy exchanged visits frequently, as did their wives, and Amy had nothing but praise for him after all these years. He seemed slightly proud of the notice his place had attracted, and talked often of the meteorite in the succeeding weeks. That July and August were hot, and Nahum worked hard at his haying in the ten-acre pasture across Chapman's Brook, his rattling wain wearing deep ruts in the shadowy lanes between. The labour tired him more than it had in other years, and he felt that age was beginning to tell on him. Then fell the time of fruit and harvest. The pears and apples slowly ripened, and Nahum vowed that his orchards were prospering as never before. The fruit was growing to phenomenal size and unwanted gloss, and in such abundance that extra barrels were ordered to handle the future crop. But with the ripening came sore disappointment. For all that gorgeous array of specious lusciousness, not one single jot was fit to eat. Into the fine flavour of the pears and apples had crept a stealthy bitterness and sickishness, so that even the smallest of bites induced a lasting disgust. It was the same with the melons and tomatoes, and Nahum sadly saw that his entire crop was lost. Quick to connect events, he declared that the meteorite had poisoned the soil, and thanked heaven that most of the other crops were in the upland lot along the road. Winter came early and was very cold. Amy saw Nahum less often than usual, and observed that he had begun to look worried. The rest of his family, too, seemed to have grown taciturn, and were far from steady in their church-going or their attendance at the various social events of the countryside. For this reserve or melancholy no cause could be found, though all the household confessed now and then to poor health and a feeling of vague disquiet. Nahum himself gave the most definite statement of anyone when he said he was disturbed about certain footprints in the snow. They were the usual winter prints of red squirrels, white rabbits, and foxes, but the brooding farmer professed to see something not quite right about their nature and arrangement. He was never specific, but appeared to think that they were not as characteristic of the anatomy and habits of squirrels and foxes and rabbits as they ought to be. Amy listened without interest to this talk, until one night when he drove past Nahum's house in his sleigh on the way back from Clark's Corners. There had been a moon, and a rabbit had run across the road, and the leaps of the rabbit were longer than either Amy or his horse liked. The latter, indeed, had almost run away when brought up by a firm rain, 
Thereafter, Annie gave Nahum's tales more respect, and wondered why the gardener dogs seemed so cowed and quivering every morning. They had, it developed, nearly lost the spirit to bark. In February, the McGregor boys from Meadow Hill were out shooting woodchucks, and not far from the gardener place bagged a very peculiar specimen. The proportions of its body seemed slightly altered, in a queer way impossible to describe, while its face had taken on an expression which no one ever saw in a woodchuck before. The boys were genuinely frightened, and threw the thing away at once, so that only their grotesque tales of it ever reached the people of the countryside. But the shying of the horses near Nahum's house had now become an acknowledged thing, and all the basis for a cycle of whispered legend was fast taking form. People had vowed that the snow had melted faster around Nahum's than it did anywhere else, and early in March there was an odd discussion in Potter's General Store in Clark's Corners. Stephen Rice had driven past gardeners in the morning, and had noticed the skunk cabbages coming up through the mud by the woods across the road. Never were things of such size seen before, and they had held strange colours that could not be put into any words. Their shapes were monstrous, and the horse had snorted at an odour which struck Stephen as wholly unprecedented. That afternoon, several persons drove past to see the abnormal growth, and all agreed that plants of that kind ought never to sprout in a healthy world. The bad fruit of the fall before was freely mentioned, and it went from mouth to mouth that there was poison in Nahum's ground. Of course it was the meteorite, and remembering how strange the men from the college had found that stone to be, several farmers spoke about the matter to them. One day they paid Nahum a visit, but having no love of wild tales and folklore, were very conservative in what they inferred. The plants were certainly odd, but all skunk cabbages are more or less odd in shape and odour and hue. Perhaps some mineral element from the stone had entered the soil, but it would soon be washed away. And as for the footprints and frightened horses, of course this was mere country talk, which such phenomenon as the aerolite would be certain to start. There was really nothing for serious men to do in cases of wild gossip, for superstitious rustics would say and believe anything. And so all through the strange days the professor stayed away in contempt. Only one of them, when given two files of dust for analysis in a police job over a year and a half later, recalled that the queer colour of the skunk cabbages had been very like one of the anomalous bands of light shown by the meteor fragment in the college spectroscope, and like the brittle globule found embedded in the stone from the abyss. The samples in this analysis case gave the same odd bands at first, though later they lost the property. The trees budded prematurely around Nahum's, and at night they swayed ominously in the wind. Nahum's second son Thaddeus, a lad of fifteen, swore that they swayed also when there was no wind, but even the gossips would not credit this. Certainly, however, restlessness was in the air. The entire Gardner family developed the habit of stealthy listening, though not for any sound which they could consciously name. The listening was, indeed, rather a product of moments when consciousness seemed to half slip away. Unfortunately, such moments increased week by week, till it became common speech that something was wrong with all names, folks. When the early saxifrage came out, it had another strange colour, not quite like that of the skunk cabbage but plainly related, and equally unknown to anyone who saw it. Nahum took some blossoms to Arkham and showed them to the editor of the Gazette, but that dignitary did no more than write a humorous article about them, in which the dark fears of rustics were held up to polite ridicule. It was a mistake of Nahum's to tell a stolid city man about the way the great overgrown mourning cloak butterflies behaved in connection with these sexifrages. 
April brought a kind of madness to the country folk, and began that disuse of the road past Naums, which led to its ultimate abandonment. It was the vegetation. All the orchard trees blossomed forth in strange colours, and through the stony soil of the yard and adjacent pasturage there sprang up a bizarre growth which only a botanist could connect with the proper flora of the region. No sane wholesome colours were anywhere to be seen, except in the green grass and leafage. But everywhere those hectic and prismatic variants of some diseased, underlying primary tone without a place among the known tints of earth. The Dutchman's breeches became a thing of sinister menace, and the blood roots grew insolent in their chromatic perversion. Amy and the gardeners thought that most of the colours had a sort of haunting familiarity, and decided that they reminded one of the brittle globule in the meteor. Nahum ploughed and sowed the ten-acre pasturage and the upland lot, but did nothing with the land around the house. He knew it would be of no use, and hoped that the summer's strange growth would draw all the poison from the soil. He was prepared for almost anything now, and had grown used to the sense of something near him waiting to be heard. The shunning of his house by neighbours told on him, of course, but it told on his wife more. The boys were better off being at school each day, but they could not help being frightened by the gossip. Thaddeus, an especially sensitive youth, suffered the most. In May the insects came, and Nahum's place became a nightmare of buzzing and crawling. Most of the creatures seemed not quite usual in their aspects and motions, and their nocturnal habits contradicted all former experience. The gardeners took to watching at night, watching in all directions at random for something they could not tell what. It was then that they all owned that Thaddeus had been right about the trees. Mrs. Gardner was the next to see it from the window as she watched the swollen boughs of a maple against the moonlit sky. The boughs surely moved, and there was no wind. It must be the sap. Strangeness had come into everything growing now, yet it was none of Nahum's family at all who made the next discovery. Familiarity had dulled them, and what they could not see was glimpsed by a timid woodmill salesman from Bolton, who drove by one night in ignorance of the country legends. What he told in Arkham was given a short paragraph in the Gazette, and it was there that all the farmers, Nahum included, saw it first. The night had been dark, and the buggy lamps faint, but around the farm in the valley which everyone knew from account must be Nahum's, the darkness had been less thick. A dim though distinct luminosity seemed to inhere in all the vegetation, grass, leaves, and blossoms alike, while at one moment a detached piece of the phosphorescence appeared to store furtively in the yard near the barn. The grass had so far seemed untouched, and the cows were freely pastured in the lot near the house, but toward the end of May the milk began to be bad. Then Nahum had the cows driven to the uplands, after which the trouble ceased. Not long after this, the change in grass and leaves became apparent to the eye. All the verdure was going grey, and was developing a highly singular quality of brittleness. Amy was now the only person who ever visited the place, and his visits were becoming fewer and fewer. When school closed, the gardeners were virtually cut off from the world, and sometimes let Amy do their errands in town. They were failing curiously both physically and mentally, and no one was surprised when the news of Mrs. Gardner's madness stole around. It happened in June, about the anniversary of the meteor's fall, and the poor woman screamed about things in the air which she could not describe. In her ravings there was not a single specific noun, but only verbs and pronouns. Things moved, and changed, and fluttered, and ears tingled to impulses which were not wholly sound. 
Something was taken away. She was being drained of something. Something was fastening itself on her that ought not to be. Someone must make it keep off. Nothing was ever still in the night. The walls and windows shifted. Nahum did not send her to the county asylum, but let her wander about the house as long as she was harmless to herself and others. Even when her expression changed, he did nothing. But when the boys grew afraid of her, and Thaddeus nearly fainted at the way she made faces at him, he decided to keep her locked in the attic. By July, she had ceased to speak and crawl on all fours, and before that month was over, Nahum got the mad notion that she was slightly luminous in the dark, as he now clearly saw was the case with the nearby vegetation. It was a little before this that the horses had stampeded. Something had aroused them in the night, and their neighing and kicking in the stalls had been terrible. There seemed virtually nothing to do to calm them, and when Nahum opened the stable door, they all bolted out like frightened woodland deer. It took a week to track all four, and when found, they were seen to be quite useless and unmanageable. Something had snapped in their brains, and each one had to be shot for its own good. Nahum borrowed a horse from Amy for his haying, but found it would not approach the barn. It shied, balked, and whinnied, and in the end he could do nothing but drive it into the yard while the men used their own strength to get the heavy wagon near enough the hayloft for convenient pitching. And all the while the vegetation was turning grey and brittle. Even the flowers, whose hues had been so strange, were greying now, and the fruit was coming out grey and dwarfed and tasteless. The asters and goldenrod bloomed grey and distorted, and the roses and zinnias and hollyhocks in the front yard were such blasphemous-looking things that Nahum's oldest son, Zenus, cut them down. The strangely puffed insects died about that time, even the bees that had left their hives and taken to the woods. By September, all the vegetation was fast crumbling to a greyish powder, and Nahum feared that the trees would die before the poison was out of the soil. His wife now had spells of terrific screaming, and he and the boys were in a constant state of nervous tension. They shunned people now, and when school opened, the boys did not go. But it was Amy, on one of his rare visits, who first realised that the well water was no longer good. It had an evil taste that was not exactly fetid, nor exactly salty, and Amy advised his friend to dig another well, on higher ground, to use till the soil was good again. Nahum, however, ignored the warning, for he had, by that time, become callous to strange and unpleasant things. He and the boys continued to use the tainted supply, drinking it as listlessly and mechanically as they ate their meagre and ill-cooked meals and did their thankless and monotonous chores through the aimless days. There was something of stolid resignation about them all, as if they walked half in another world between lines of nameless guards to a certain and familiar doom. Thaddeus went mad in September after a visit to the well. He had gone with a pail and had come back empty-handed shrieking and waving his arms, and sometimes lapsing into an inane titter or a whisper about the moving colours down there. Two-in-one family was pretty bad, but Nahum was very brave about it. He let the boy run about for a week until he began stumbling and hurting himself, and then he shut him in an attic room across the hall from his mother's. The way they screamed at each other from behind their locked doors was very terrible, especially to little Merwin, who fancied they talked in some terrible language that was not of earth. Merwin was getting frightfully imaginative, and his restfulness was worse after the shutting away of the brother who had been his greatest playmate. Almost at the same time, the mortality among the livestock commenced. Poultry turned greyish and died very quickly, their meat being found dry and noisome upon cutting, 
Hogs grew inordinately fat and then suddenly began to undergo loathsome changes which no one could explain. Their meat was, of course, useless, and Nahum was at his wit's end. No rural veterinary would approach his place, and a city veterinary from Arkham was openly baffled. The swine began growing grey and brittle, and falling to pieces before they died, and their eyes and muzzles developed singular alterations. It was very inexplicable, for they had never been fed from the tainted vegetation. Then something struck the cows. Certain areas, or sometimes the whole body, would be uncannily shriveled or compressed, and atrocious collapses or disintegrations were common. In the last stages, and death was always the result, there would be a graying and turning brittle like that which beset the hogs. There could be no question of poison, for all the cases occurred in a locked and undisturbed barn. No bites of prowling things could have brought the virus, for what live beast of earth could pass through such obstacles? It must only be natural disease, yet what disease could wreck such results was beyond any mind's guessing. When the harvest came, there was not a single animal surviving on the place, for the stock and poultry were dead, and the dogs had run away. These dogs, three in number, had all vanished one night, and were never heard of again. The five cats had left some time before, but their going was scarcely noticed, since there now seemed to be no mice, and only Mrs. Gardiner had made pets of the graceful felines. On the 19th of October, Nahum staggered into Amy's house with hideous news. The death had come to poor Thaddeus in his attic room, and it had come in a way which could not be told. Nahum had dug a grave in the railed family plot behind the farm, and had put therein what he found. There could have been nothing from outside for the small barred window and locked door were intact, but it was much as it had been in the barn. Amy and his wife consoled the stricken man as best they could, but shuddered as they did so. Stark terror seemed to cling around the gardeners and all they touched, and the very presence of one in the house was a breath from regions unnamed and unnameable. Amy accompanied Nahum home with the greatest reluctance, and did what he might to calm the hysterical sobbing of little Merwin. Zenas needed no calming, he had come of late to do nothing but stare into space and obey what his father told him, and Amy thought that his fate was very merciful. Now and then Merwin's screams were answered faintly from the attic, and in response to an inquiring look, Nahum said that his wife was getting very feeble. When night approached, Amy managed to get away, for not even friendship could make him stay in that spot where the faint glow of the vegetation began, and the trees may or may not have swayed without wind. It was really lucky for Amy that he was not more imaginative. Even as things were, his mind was bent ever so slightly, but had he been able to connect and reflect on all the portents around him, he must inevitably have turned a total maniac. In the twilight he hastened home, the screams of the mad woman and the nervous child ringing horribly in his ears. Three days later Nahum lurched into Amy's kitchen in the early morning, and in the absence of his host stammered out a desperate tale once more, while Mrs. Pierce listened in a clutching fright. It was little Merwin this time. He was gone. He had gone out late at night with a lantern and a pail for water, and had never come back. He had been going to pieces for days, and hardly knew what he was about. Screamed at everything. There had been a frantic shriek from the yard then, but before the father could get to the door, the boy was gone. There was no glow from the lantern he had taken, and of the child himself no trace. At the time, Nahum thought the pail and lantern were gone too, but when dawn came, and a man had plodded back from his all-night search of the woods and fields. He had found some very curious things near the well. There was a crushed and apparently somewhat melted mass of iron, which had certainly been the lantern, while a bent bale and twisted iron hoops beside it 
bored hair fused, seemed to hint at the remnants of the pale. That was all. Name was past imagining. Mrs. Pierce was blank, and Emmy, when he reached home and heard the tale, could give no guess. Merwin was gone, and there would be no use in telling the people around, who shunned all gardeners now. No use, either, in telling the city people at Arkham, who laughed at everything. Thad had gone, and now Mernie was gone. Something was creeping and creeping, and waiting to be seen and felt and heard. Nahum would go soon, and he wanted Amy to look after his wife and Zenas, if they survived him. It must all be a judgment of some sort, though he could not fancy what for, since he had always walked uprightly in the Lord's ways, so far as he knew. For over two weeks Amy saw nothing of Nahum, and then, worried about what might have happened, he overcame his fears and paid the gardener place a visit. There was no smoke from the great chimney, and for a moment the visitor was apprehensive of the worst. The aspect of the whole farm was shocking. Greyish withered grass and leaves on the ground, vines falling in brittle wreckage from archaic walls and gables, and great bare trees clawing up at the grey November sky with a studied malevolence which Annie could not but feel had come from some subtle change in the tilt of the branches. But Nahum was alive after all. He was weak and lying on a couch in the low-sealed kitchen, but perfectly conscious and able to give simple orders to Zenas. The room was deadly cold, and as Amy visibly shivered, the host shouted huskily to Zenas for more wood. Wood, indeed, was sorely needed, since the cavernous fireplace was unlit and empty, with a cloud of soot blowing about and the chill winds that came down the chimney. Presently Nahum asked him if the extra wood had made him any more comfortable, and then Amy saw what had happened. The stoutest cord had broken at last, and the hapless farmer's mind was proof against more sorrow. Questioning tactfully, Amy could get no clear data at all about the missing Zenus. In the well, he lives in the well, was all that the clouded father would say. Then there flashed across the visitor's mind a sudden thought of the mad wife, and he changed his line of inquiry. Nabby, why, here she is, was the surprised response of poor Nahum, and Amy soon saw that he must search for himself. Leaving the harmless babbler on the couch, he took the keys from their nail beside the door and climbed the creaking stairs to the attic. It was very close and noisome up there, and no sound could be heard from any direction. Of the four doors in sight, only one was locked, and on this he tried various keys on the ring he had taken. The third key proved the right one, and after some fumbling, Amy threw open the low white door. It was quite dark inside, for the window was small and half-obscured by the crude wooden bars, and Amy could see nothing at all on the wide planked floor. It was quite dark inside, for the window was small and half-obscured by the crude wooden bars, and Amy could see nothing at all on the wide planked floor. The stench was beyond enduring, and before proceeding further, he had to retreat to another room and return with his lungs filled with breathable air. When he did enter, he saw something dark in the corner, and upon seeing it more clearly, he screamed outright. While he screamed, he thought a momentary cloud eclipsed the window, and a second later, he felt himself brushed as if by some hateful current of vapour. Strange colours danced before his eyes, and had not a present horror numbed him, he would have thought of the globule in the meteor that the geologist's hammer had shattered, and of the morbid ve vegetation that had sprouted in the spring. Strange colours danced before his eyes, and had not a present horror numbed him, he would have thought of the globule in the meteor that the geologist's hammer had shattered, and of the morbid vegetation that had sprouted in the spring. As it was, 
he thought only of the blasphemous monstrosity which confronted him, and which all too clearly had shared the nameless fate of young Thaddeus and the livestock. But the terrible thing about this horror was that it very slowly and perceptibly moved as it continued to crumble. Amy would give me no added particulars to this scene, but the shape in the corner does not reappear in his tale as a moving object. There are things which cannot be mentioned, and what is done in common humanity is sometimes cruelly judged by the law. I gathered that no moving thing was left in that attic room, and that to leave anything capable of motion there would have been a deed so monstrous as to damn any accountable being to eternal torment. Anyone but a stolid farmer would have fainted or gone mad, but Amy walked conscious through that low doorway and locked the accursed secret behind him. There would be name to deal with now. He must be fed and tended and removed to some place where he could be cared for. Commencing his descent of the dark stairs, Amy heard a thud behind him. He even thought a scream had been suddenly choked off, and recalled nervously the clammy vapour which had brushed by him in that frightful room above. What presence had his cry and entry started up? Halted by some vague fear, he heard still further sounds below. Indubitably, there was a sort of heavy dragging, and a most detestably sticky noise, as of some fiendish and unclean species of suction. With an associative sense, goaded to feverish heights, he thought unaccountably of what he had seen upstairs. Good God! What eldritch dream-world was this into which he had blundered? He dared move neither backward nor forward, but stood there trembling at the black curve of the boxed-in staircase. Every trifle of the scene burned itself into his brain. The sounds, the sense of dread expectancy, the darkness, the steepness of the narrow stairs, and merciful heaven, the faint but unmistakable luminosity of all the woodwork in sight, steps, sides, exposed laths, and beams alike. Then there burst forth a frantic whinny from Amy's horse outside, followed at once by a clatter which told of a frenzied runaway. In another moment horse and buggy had gone beyond earshot, leaving the frightened man on the dark stairs to guess what had sent them. But that was not all. There had been another sound out there, a sort of liquid splash, water. It must have been the well. He had left Hero untied near it, and a buggy wheel must have brushed the coping and knocked in a stone. And still the pale phosphorescence glowed in that detestably ancient woodwork. God, how old the house was, most of it built before 1670, and the gambrel roof not later than 1730. A feeble scratching on the floor downstairs now sounded distinctly, and Amy's grip tightened on a heavy stick he had picked up in the attic for some purpose. Slowly nerving himself, he finished his descent and walked boldly toward the kitchen. But he did not complete the walk, because what he sought was no longer there. It had come to meet him, and it was still alive, after a fashion. Whether it had crawled, or whether it had been dragged by an external force, Amy could not say. But the death had been at it. Everything had happened in the last half hour, but collapse, graying, and disintegration were already far advanced. There was a horrible brittleness, and dry fragments were scaling off. Amy could not touch it, but looked horrifiedly into the distorted parody that had been a face. What was it, Nam? What was it? he whispered, and the cleft, bulging lips were just able to crack out a final answer. Nothing. Nothing. The colour. It burns. Cold and wet, but it burns. It lived in the well. I seen it. A kind of smoke. Just like the flowers last spring. The well shone at night. Tad, 
and Murney and Zenus. Everything alive, sucking the life out of everything. In that stone! It must have come in that stone, poisoned the whole place. Don't know what it wants. That round thing them men from the college dug out in the stone. They smashed it. It was the same colour, just the same, like the flowers and plants. There must have been more of them. Seeds, seeds! They growed. I seen it the first time this week. It must have gotten strong and seen us. He was a big boy, full of life. It beats down your mind and then gets you, burns you up. In the well water. He was right about that. Evil water. Zenus never came back from the well. Can't get away. Draws you. You know something's coming, but tain't no use. I seen it time and again since Zenus got tech. Where's Nabby, Annie? My head's no good. Don't know long since I fed her. It'll get her if we ain't careful. Just a colour. Her face is getting to have that same colour sometimes, toward night. And it burns and sucks. It comes from some place where things ain't as they as here. One of them professors said so. He was right. Look out, Annie. It'll do something more. Sucks the life out. But that was all. That which spoke could speak no more because it had completely caved in. Amy laid a red checked tablecloth over what was left and reeled out the back door into the fields. He climbed the slope to Ten Acre Pasture and stumbled home by the north road in the woods. He could not pass that well from which his horse had run away. He had looked at it through the window and had seen that no stone was missing from the rim. Then the lurching buggy had not dislodged anything after all. The splash had been something else. Something which went into the well after it was done with poor Nahum. When Amy reached his house, the horse and buggy had arrived before him and thrown his wife into fits of anxiety. Reassuring her without explanations, he set out at once for Arkham and notified the authorities that the Gardner family was no more. He indulged in no details, but merely told of the deaths of Nahum and Nabby, that of Thaddeus already being known, and mentioned that the cause seemed to be the same strange ailment which had killed the livestock. He also stated that Merwin and Zenas had disappeared. There was considerable questioning at the police station, and in the end, Amy was compelled to take three officers to the Gardner farm, together with the coroner, the medical examiner, and the veterinary who had treated the diseased animals. He went much against his will, for the afternoon was advancing, and he feared the fall of night over that accursed place, but it was some comfort to have so many people with him. The six men drove out in a Democrat wagon, following Amy's buggy, and arrived at the pest-ridden farmhouse about four o'clock. Used as the officers were to gruesome experiences, not one remained unmoved by what was found in the attic and under the red-checked tablecloth on the floor below. The whole aspect of the farm with its grey desolation was terrible enough, but those two crumbling objects were beyond all bounds. No one could look long at them, and even the medical examiner admitted that there was very little to examine. Specimens could be analysed, of course, so he busied himself in obtaining them. And here it develops that a very puzzling aftermath occurred at the college laboratory, where the two files of dust were finally taken. Under the spectroscope, both samples give off an unknown spectrum, in which many of the baffling bands were precisely like those which a strange meteor had yielded the previous year. The property of emitting this spectrum vanished in a month, the dust thereafter consisting mainly of alkaline phosphates and carbonates. Amy would not have told the men about the well, if he had thought they meant to do anything then and there. It was getting toward sunset, and he was anxious to be away, but he could not help glancing nervously at the stony curb by the great sweep, and when the detective questioned him, 
he admitted that Nahum had feared something down there, so much so that he had never even thought of searching it for Merwin or Zenas. After that, nothing would do but that they empty and explored the well immediately, so Annie had to wait trembling while pail after pail of rank water was hauled up and splashed on the soaking ground outside. The men sniffed in disgust at the fluid, and toward the last held their noses against the feeder they were uncovering. It was not so long a job as they feared it would be, since the water was phenomenally low. There is no need to speak too exactly of what they found. Merwin and Zenas were both there, in part, though the vestiges were mainly skeletal. There were also a small deer and a large dog in about the same state, and a number of bones of smaller animals. The ooze and slime at the bottom seemed inexplicably porous and bubbling, and a man who descended on handholds with a long pole found that he could sink the wooden shaft to any depth in the mud of the floor without meeting any solid obstruction. Twilight had now fallen, and lanterns were brought from the house. Then, when it seemed that nothing further could be gained from the well, everyone went indoors and conferred in the ancient sitting-room, while the intermittent light of a spectral half-moon played wanly on the grey desolation outside. The men were frankly nonplussed by the entire case, and could find no convincing common element to link the strange vegetable conditions, the unknown disease of livestock and humans, and the unaccountable deaths of Merwin and Zenas in the tainted well. They had heard the common country talk, it is true, but could not believe that anything contrary to natural law had occurred. No doubt the meteor had poisoned the soil, but the illness of persons and animals who had eaten nothing grown in that soil was another matter. Was it the well water? Very possibly. It might be a good idea to analyse it, but what peculiar madness could have made both boys jump into the, that well? Their deeds were so similar, and the fragments showed that they had both suffered from the grey brittle death. Why was everything so grey and brittle? It was the coroner, seated near a window overlooking the yard, who first noticed the glow about the well. Night had fully set in, and all the abhorrent grounds seemed faintly luminous, with more than the fitful moonbeams. But this new glow was something definite and distinct, and appeared to shoot up from the black pit like a softened ray from a searchlight, giving dull reflections in the little ground pools where the water had been emptied. It had a very queer colour, and as all the men clustered round the window, Annie gave a violent start. For this strange beam of ghastly miasma was to him of no unfamiliar hue. He had seen that colour before, and feared to think what it might mean. He had seen it in a nasty brittle globule in the aerolite two summers ago, had seen it in the crazy vegetation of the springtime, and had thought he had seen it for an instant that very morning against the small barred window of that terrible attic room where nameless things had happened. It had flashed there a second, and a clammy and hateful current of vapour had brushed past him, and then poor Nahum had been taken by something of that colour. He had said so at the last, said it was like the globule and the plants. After that had come the runaway in the yard, and the splash in the well, and now that well was belching forth to the night, a pale insidious beam of the same demonic tint. It does credit to the alertness of Amy's mind that he puzzled even at that tense moment over a point which was essentially scientific. He could not but wonder at his gleaning of the same impression from a vapour glimpsed in the daylight against a window opening on the morning sky, and from a nocturnal exhalation seen as a phosphorescent mist against a black and blasted landscape. 
It wasn't right. It was against nature. And he thought of those terrible last words of his stricken friend. It come from some place where things aren't they as they is here. One of them professors said so. All three horses outside, tied to a pair of shriveled saplings by the road, were now neighing and pawing frantically. The wagon driver started for the door to do something, but Amy laid a shaky hand on his shoulder. Don't go out there, he whispered. There's more to this nor what we know. Nahum said something lived in the well that sucks your life out. He said it must be something that growed from a round ball, like one we all seen in the meteor stone that fell a year ago June. Sucks and burns, he says, and it's just a cloud of colour, like that light out there now, that you can hardly see and can't tell what it is. Nahum thought it feeds on everything living, and gets stronger all the time. He said he seen this last week. It must be something from way off in the sky, like the men from the college last year says the meteor stone was. The way it's made and the way it works ain't like no way or God's world. It's somewhat from beyond. So the men paused indecisively as the light from the well grew stronger and the hitched horses pawed and whinnied in increasing frenzy. It was truly an awful moment. With terror in that ancient and accursed house itself, four monstrous sets of fragments, two from the house and two from the well, in the woodshed behind, and that shaft of unknown and unholy iridescence from the slimy depths in front. Amy had restrained the driver on impulse, forgetting how uninjured he himself was after the clammy brushing of that coloured vapour in the attic room. But perhaps it is just as well that he acted as he did. No one will ever know what was abroad that night, and though the blasphemy from beyond had not so far hurt any human of unweakened mind, there is no telling what it might not have done at that last moment, and with its seemingly increased strength and the special signs of purpose it was soon to display beneath the half-clouded moonlit sky. All at once one of the detectives at the window gave a short, sharp gasp. The others looked at him, and then quickly followed his own gaze upward to the point at which its idle straying had been suddenly arrested. There was no need for words. What had been disputed in country gossip was indisputable no longer, and it is because of the thing which every man of that party agreed in whispering later on that the strange days are never talked of in Arkham. It is necessary to premise that there was no wind at that hour of the evening. One did arise not long afterwards, but there was absolutely none then. Even the dry tips of the lingering hedge mustard, grey and blighted, and the fringe on the roof of the standing Democrat wagon were unstirred, and yet, amid that tense godless calm, the high bare boughs of all the trees in the yard were moving. They were twitching morbidly and spasmodically, clawing in convulsive and epileptic madness at the moonlit clouds, scratching impotently in the noxious air, as if jerked by some alien and bodiless line of linkage with subterranean horrors writhing and struggling below the black roots. Not a man breathed for several seconds. Then a cloud of darker depth passed over the moon, and the silhouette of clutching branches faded out momentarily. At this there was a general cry, muffled with awe, but husky and almost identical from every throat. For the terror had not faded with the silhouette, and in a fearsome instant of deeper darkness, the watchers saw, wriggling at that treetop height, a thousand tiny points of faint and unhallowed radiance, tipping each bow like the fire of St. Elmo, or the flames that came down on the apostles' heads at Pentecost. It was a monstrous constellation of unnatural light, like a glutted swarm of corpse-fed fireflies dancing hellish sarabands over an accursed marsh, and its colour 
was that same nameless intrusion which Annie had come to recognise and dread. All the while the shaft of phosphorescence from the well was getting brighter and brighter, bringing to the minds of the huddled men a sense of doom and abnormality which far outraced any image their conscious minds could form. It was no longer shining out, it was pouring out, and as the shapeless stream of unplaceable colour left the well, it seemed to flow directly into the sky. The veterinary shivered and walked to the front door to drop the heavy extra bar across it. Amy shook no less, and had to tug and point for lack of a controllable voice when he wished to draw notice to the growing luminosity of the trees. The neighing and stamping of the horses had become utterly frightful, but not a soul of that group in the old house would have ventured forth for any earthly reward. With the moments the shining of the trees increased, while their restless branches seemed to strain more and more toward verticality. The wood of the well-sweep was shining now, and presently a policeman dumbly pointed to some wooden sheds and beehives near the stone wall on the west. They were commencing to shine too, though the tethered vehicles of the visitors seemed so far unaffected. Then there was a wild commotion and clopping in the road, and as Amy quenched the lamp for better seeing, they realised that the span of frantic greys had broke their sapling and run off with the Democrat wagon. The shock served to loosen several tongues, and embarrassed whispers were exchanged. It spreads on everything organic that's been around here, muttered the medical examiner. No one replied, but the man who had been in the well gave a hint that his long pole must have stirred up something intangible. It was awful, he added. There was no bottom at all, just ooze and bubbles and the feeling of something lurking under there. Amy's horse still pawed and screamed deafeningly in the road outside and nearly drowned its owner's faint quaver as he mumbled his formless reflections. It come from that stone. It growed down there. It got everything living. It fed on him, mind and body. Tad and Murney, Zenus and Nabby. Name was the last. They all drunk the water. It got strong on him. It come from beyond, where things ain't like they be here. Now it's going home. At this point, as the column of unknown colour flared suddenly stronger and began to weave itself into fantastic suggestions of shape, which each spectator later described differently, there came from poor Hero such a sound as no man before or since ever heard from a horse. Every person in that low-pitched sitting-room stopped his ears, and Amy turned away from the window in horror and nausea. Words could not convey it. When Amy looked out again, the helpless beast lay huddled inert on the moonlit ground, beneath the splintered shafts of the buggy. That was the last of Hero till they buried him the next day. But the present was no time to mourn, for almost at this instant a detective silently called attention to something terrible in the very room with them. In the absence of the lamplight, it was clear that a faint phosphorescence had begun to pervade the entire apartment. It glowed on the broad planked floor and the fragment of rag carpet, and shimmered over the sashes of the small paned windows. It ran up and down the exposed corner posts, coruscated about the shelf and mantel, and infected the very doors and furniture. Each minute saw it strengthen, and at last it was very plain that healthy living things must leave that house. Amy showed them the back door, and a path up through the fields to the ten-acre pasture. They walked and stumbled as in a dream, and did not dare look back till they were far away on the high ground. They were glad of the path, for they could not have gone the front way, by that well. It was bad enough passing the glowing barn and sheds, and those shining orchard trees with the gnarled, fiendish consors. But thank heavens, the branches did their worst twisting high up. 
The moon went under some very black clouds as they passed the rustic bridge over Chapman's Brook, and it was blind groping from there to the open meadows. When they looked back toward the valley and the distant gardener place at the bottom, they saw a fearsome sight. All the farm was shining with the hideous unknown blend of colour. Trees, buildings, and even such grass and herbage as had not been wholly changed to lethal grey brittleness. The boughs were all straining skyward, tipped with tongues of foul flame, and lambent tricklings of the same monstrous fire were creeping about the ridge poles of the house, barn, and sheds. It was a scene from a vision of Fuseli, and over all the rest reigned that riot of luminous amorphousness, that alien and undimensioned rainbow of cryptic poison from the well. Seething, feeling, lapping, reaching, scintillating, straining, and malignly bubbling in its cosmic and unrecognizable chromaticism. Then, without warning, the hideous thing shot vertically up toward the sky like a rocket or meteor, leaving behind no trail and disappearing through a round and curiously regular hole in the clouds before any man could gasp or cry out. No watcher can ever forget that sight, and Amy stared blankly at the stars of Cygnus, Deneb twinkling above the others, where the unknown colour had melted into the Milky Way. But his gaze was the next moment called swiftly to earth by the crackling in the valley. It was just that, only a wooden ripping and crackling, not an explosion, as so many others of the party vowed. Yet the outcome was the same. For one feverish kaleidoscopic instant, there burst up from that doomed and accursed firm a gleamingly eruptive cataclysm of unnatural sparks and substance, blurring the glance of the few who saw it, and sending forth to the zenith a bombarding cloudburst of such coloured and fantastic fragments as our universe must needs disown. Through quickly reclosing vapours they followed the great morbidity that had vanished, and in another second they had vanished too. Behind and below was only a darkness to which the men dared not return, and all about was a mounting wind which seemed to sweep down in black frore gusts from interstellar space. It shrieked and howled, and lashed the fields and distorted woods in a mad cosmic frenzy, till soon the trembling party realised it was no use waiting for the moon to show what was left down there at Nams. Too old even to hint theories, the seven shaking men trudged back toward Arkham by the north road. Amy was worse than his fellows, and begged them to see him inside his own kitchen, instead of keeping straight on to town. He did not wish to cross the nighted, wind-whipped woods alone to his home on the main road, for he had had an added shock that the others were spared, and was crushed forever with a brooding fear he dared not even mention for many years to come. As the rest of the watchers on that tempestuous hill had stolidly set their faces towards the road, Amy had looked back an instant at the shadowed valley of desolation so lately sheltering his ill-starred friend, and from that stricken, faraway spot he had seen something feebly rise, only to sink down again upon the place from which the great shapeless horror had shot into the sky. It was just a colour, but not any colour of our earth or heavens. And because Amy recognised that colour, and knew that this last faint remnant must still lurk down there in the well, he has never been quite right since. Amy would never go near the place again. It is over half a century now since the horror happened, but he has never been there, and will be glad when the new reservoir blots it out. I shall be glad too, for I do not like the way the sunlight changed colour around the mouth of that abandoned well I passed. I hope the water will always be very deep, but even so, I shall never drink it. 
I do not think I shall visit the Arkham country hereafter. Three of the men who had been with Annie returned the next morning to see the ruins by daylight, but there were not any real ruins. Only the bricks of the chimney, the stones of the cellar, some mineral and metallic litter here and there, and the rim of that nefandous well. Save for Annie's dead horse, which they towed away and buried, and the buggy which they shortly returned to him, everything that had ever been living had gone. Five eldritch acres of dusty grey desert remained, nor has anything ever grown there since. To this day it sprawls open to the sky like a great spot eaten by acid in the woods and fields, and a few who have ever dared glimpse it in spite of the rural tales have named it the Blasted Heath. The rural tales are queer. They might be even queerer if city men and college chemists could be interested enough to analyse the water from that disused well, or the grey dust that no wind ever seems to disperse. Botanists, too, ought to study the stunted flora on the borders of that spot, for they might shed light on the country notion that the blight is spreading, little by little, perhaps an inch of year. People say the colour of the neighbouring herbage is not quite right in the spring, and that wild things leave queer prints in the light winter snow. Snow never seems quite so heavy on the blasted heath as it is elsewhere. Horses, the few that are left in this motor age, grow skittish in the silent valley, and hunters cannot depend on their dogs too near the splotch of greyish dust. They say the mental influences are very bad too. Numbers went queer in the years after names taking, and always they lacked the power to get away. Then the stronger-minded folk all left the region, and only the foreigners tried to live in the crumbling old homesteads. They could not stay, though, and one sometimes wonders what insight beyond ours their wild, weird stores of whispered magic might have given them. Their dreams at night, they protest, were very horrible in that grotesque country, and surely the very look of the dark realm is enough to stir a morbid fancy. No traveller has ever escaped a sense of strangeness in those deep ravines. An artist shiver as they paint thick woods, whose mystery is as much of the spirit as of the eye. I myself am curious about the sensation I derived from my one lone walk before Annie told me his tale. When twilight came, I had vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for a nod timidity about the deep skyey voids above had crept into my soul. Do not ask me for my opinion. I do not know. That is all. There was no one but Amy to question, for Arkham people will not talk about the strange days, and all three professors who saw the aerolite and its coloured globule are dead. There were other globules, depend on that. One must have fed itself and escaped, and probably there was another, which was too late. No doubt it is still down in the well. I know there was something wrong with the sunlight I saw above that miasmal brink. The rustics say the blight creeps an inch a year, so perhaps there is a kind of growth or nourishment even now. But whatever demon hatchling is there, it must be tethered to something, or else it would quickly spread. Is it fastened to the roots of those trees that claw the air? One of the current Arkham tales is about fat oaks that shine and move, as they ought not to do at night. What it is, only God knows. In terms of matter, I suppose the thing Amy described would be called a gas, but this gas obeyed laws that are not of our cosmos. This was no fruit of such worlds and suns as shine on the telescopes and photographic plates of our observatories. This was no breath from the skies, whose motions and dimensions our astronomers measure are deemed too vast to measure. It was just a colour out of space. 
a frightful messenger from unformed realms of infinity, beyond all nature as we know it, from realms whose mere existence stuns the brain and numbs us with the black extra-cosmic gulfs it throws open before our frenzied eyes. I doubt very much if Emmy consciously lied to me, and I do not think his tale was all a freak of madness, as the town folk had forewarned. Something terrible came to the hills and valleys on that meteor, and something terrible, though I do not know in what proportion, still remains. I shall be glad to see the water come. Meanwhile I hope nothing will happen to Emmy. He saw so much of the thing, and its influence was so insidious. Why has he never been able to move away? How clearly he recalled those dying words of names. Can't get away. Draws you. You know something's a-coming, but tain't no use. Amy is such a good old man. When the reservoir gang gets to work, I must write the chief engineer to keep a sharp watch on him. I would hate to think of him as the grey, twisted, brittle monstrosity which persists more and more in troubling my sleep. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Mirko from the German Lovecraftian podcast Arkham Insiders to be found at arkhaminsiders.com. And I'm Juan Wu, director of uh, Die Farbe, the German adaptation of The Color of Space. Yeah, Die Farbe is German for the color, is that right? Yeah, that's the color, yeah, Die Farbe. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's weird, I was listening to the uh, audio drama version of it by uh, the Atlanta Radio Theater Company, which is, there's also uh, one by um, the HPLHS, uh, HP Lovecraft Historical Society, they did one as well. Yeah, that is pr pretty new, I think. Uh, I think they did it last 2013, year. Yeah. 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 The funny thing is because we know each other and we are friends and they, they like the, the movie, uh, our movie as well. So they, I think they, yeah, they decided to make one of the scientists, one of the geologists, uh, who is, uh, observing and probing the, the meteorite that he has a German ancestor or something like that. But he's, yeah, he's speaking German. So he's saying yeah, it's a weird. German he sentence. Said, he cool. said De Farbe. And I was like, yeah, what the hell? <laughs> that's not in the story. <laughs> yeah, great. And that's a really nice nod to our oh, film. Yeah. No. yeah, it's not in the original story. Cool. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk yes. about The Color Out of Space. <laughs> uh, the H.P. Lovecraft um, is a novella. Short, it's it's a long short story novelette mm -hmm. maybe uh, from September 1927 issue of Amazing Stories, um, very science fictiony for Lovecraft, but of course full of horror. And um, yeah, I, I think it was, it was the first story where, where he explored mixing science fiction and horror together. And yeah, yeah, I think he did pretty pretty well. Oh, it's pretty yeah. great. Um, I it reminds me a lot of. Um, well, actually, your movie reminded me a lot of uh, the HPLHS movie as well. What was the one they did last year or the year before? Um, um, Whisper, Whisper, and Whisper, and Whisper and Darkness. Whisper and Darkness, yes. That's a very uh, sort of, it's sort of a similar setup, isn't it? And actually, I sort of noticed the connection in your movie. Um, in the, the framing stories, kind of, it reminded me of the you know, it takes a little extra step to go outside of the main plot that's in in the the story. It's got this the framing story adds I don't know, I love framing stories, but they add <laughs> something to mm -hmm. to it. And I I found, you know, the choice to go black and white, of course, I was thinking, I wonder what he's gonna do with this. And 
it does pay off really well. But yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, yes, the framing story is is kind of difficult to to explain. There are many um, um, thoughts that went into that. One thing is that we just wanted to to have uh, a nod towards towards the, the original source that is H.P. Lovecraft. He has mm-hmm. uh, been living in. New England, and so it was nice to have a connection from Germany to United States. Yeah, and you, you the actually visit the Arkham Library, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so we could, you know, being Lovecraft fans and nerds, so we could have some scenes there to have a Miskatonic University and so on. So that's something that is just, um, yeah, it's fun to do. And mm-hmm. also, we wanted to do this because um, there was a, an image in my head from the beginning of the production, and that was. Um, GIs, American soldiers running away from the well and running mm-hmm. away from um, the color. And that image stuck in my head and so we had to make some, some construction to, to connect um, both countries. And I think it, it works pretty well, yeah, it, because it yeah, brings it something fresh the, into the story. Absolutely. I, I mean, the thing is, is it, you can go really deep into the symbology of of what the meaning of of this is uh, it's very interesting in the story we get basically people are punished for no reason right that there's no they didn't do anything wrong it's not like he was a mean father and the, you know they they had done something wrong in the village you know there's no reason for them it's, to be punished mm. it's a very cosmic horror sort of thing and that and putting it in Germany during you know World War Two or just prior, he escapes. He escapes into the war, right? That's that's his escape. It's <laughs> yeah, like, so we, we have some some very nice um, connections to to the not so nice German history. And I think yeah, as, as well, um, the the German um, audience, especially the German audience, I think they they see that we wanted to have some kind of a notion there, but it's not that. The color of the space is about the Third Reich or about uh, Holocaust, um, but we are playing with, you know, some 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 tunes there, and I think mm-hmm. it adds to the, the the cosmic horror story of Lovecraft that there is some kind of yeah connection between. It totally works, yeah. Horrors. And and the GIs are they're in in the adaptation they're essentially taking the role of the the cops. Right yeah. when the yeah. cops come, and I guess uh, they, you know, they dig up that well and all that stuff. They're taking that little job again, but then yeah. the search for the father, which I think I, I was thinking, well, you know, this is this is sort of a kind of elaboration that's not in the story, and, and it's true, it's not in the story. However, on rereading the story, I noticed at the end there is this line of like. Um, why? Why is Am um, staying in the neighborhood? Right? Yeah, definitely, be. definitely. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And that that sort of the the ending of the movie is very. I mean, it's it's got a couple of false endings, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, it makes you feel like what 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 exactly is he saying at the end here? But then I was like rereading the story, and I'm like, oh, it's it's there. It's not. Yeah, it's not fully made up. Right? And I love it because Lovecraft. You know, it's just one sentence, and and but it has, yeah, and it has not much, but but you can interpret it in in many different ways. Absolutely. And for me, it was the the idea: what if this creature has some kind of 
mind control capabilities, but mind control mm -hmm. is strong mm -hmm. because to have mind control it means that the, the creature would have to be um, intelligent for itself and would have to be um, a controlling person. But no, but uh, there are there are examples um, in in real life nature with um, you know um, insects or, mm -hmm. or parasites that are using some kind of chemical. Yeah, it's not really mind control. It's not sentient. I think it's the right word. Yeah. It's not like it's they can think about it, but but they do it somehow. They can control. Like so, there's a worm, for example, that um, is inside or can be eaten by ants, and mm -hmm. somehow it it crawls to the brain or near the brain, and then it emits some kind of stuff, and then the ant is forced to climb. Um, Upwards on on a grass harm or somewhere else and stay there. Yep. And at a right at a specific, specific time, I think it's, it's temperature controlled, so it's in the evening or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and it's then, a fungus that's doing it too. It's it's like how oh, it's is a fungus? This? Yeah, it could, could be it's a, it's a fungus. I don't know. No, yeah, I think it it's a worm. Yeah. Uh, else, no, yeah. but no, it, it, but the fun, it's a fungus carried by the worm that ah, I see. Okay. it, and then this it uses it plants its eggs in the in the body, and then the body is used as the meal for the babies. But the the yeah, it is. It's it's an amazing, horrible it's thing of nature, right? But this parasite is forcing the ant to crawl upwards so that it, it is eaten by sheep or by cattle, and so yeah. it gets into um, the next uh, host's body. <laughs> Creepy. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that was driving me to make this film and interpreting it in this way because I don't know if such things were um, commonly known uh, when when H.P. Lovecraft lived in his days, uh, but it is known today, and 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 uh, scientists are looking at such things today. And I read such stories, and, and yeah, it intrigued me. Speaking of um, the science of the of the story, um, I was listening to you guys. Of course, both I'm sure are familiar with the uh, the other HP Lovecraft podcast that's out there, HP <laughs> um, Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And in their in their two part uh, discussion of the color out of space, they mentioned how how big a fan Lovecraft was of chemistry. Yes, which plays quite a role in this in this story. Um, the fact that he's got a, a pocket, uh, sized spectroscope, spectroscope, spectroscope that is yes. amazing. Wow. Yeah. And um, he, he just got it when he, when he was a child and yeah. he still owns it when, when he's writing the story. Mm -hmm. That's pretty the, cool. The thing <laughs> is, is that the, there was a, something tripping me up while I was reading the story, originally listening to the story. I was thinking, well, how do you, how do you, really look at a new color, right? I mean, the the closest we can think of it is to, uh, I guess there was a scientist um, who who discovered infrared by measuring the temperature through a prism of different lights. So, you know, green is mm -hmm. not as much heat as red, and, and you know, orange is more heat than yellow. Um, and and then he he put a control down um, for beyond the border of the red, and of course he discovered infrared light, right? Yeah. And it's like we can't see it, but it's there. But on the other hand, the red, orange, green, blue, you know, violet scale is there, 
because we can actually see them. And so it's I always had this difficulty tripping up in my mind. This just doesn't make sense. But on the other hand, if you're a blind person, suddenly given sight, describing a new color is going to be kind of hard. Yeah, I I like also that he's playing with um, that different species have a different um, light spectrum. Sure. And we know that dogs can't see red, I think. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and I think there are some some animals that can see some kind of a fourth color, something like like that, or have a yeah. Sure. Some animals can see infrared, absolutely. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. So yeah, that that is something well, that is I think very important is... to the story to to tell, to put humans back in their place, not seeing ourselves as you know the highest and most supreme beings here. That that. The world we see is just our interpretation, and that um, well, yeah. Even more though, I think in your movie you did something that really, I mean, it's it's something that was bothering me all the way through. And I know Lovecraft is loves his science, but it was just it was just annoying me because if you've got a spectroscope, right, and you're looking through your spectroscope at a or a photographic sample, as you even show in the movie, mm-hmm. of what the the light from a star is coming out and you know the bands that are being absorbed absorption lines all that stuff i mean it's it's fascinatingly interesting but you can't put a new color in there right it's impossible yeah yeah i know what you mean but that's in your movie <laughs> what you did was you did it because <laughs> by choosing to set a movie in, you know uh, sorry not set film a movie in black and white mm-hmm. You're setting the color range between black and white and a thousand colors of gray, right? Mm-hmm. That is the color range. And then, of course, you change it. <laughs> Break the pattern that would, in a way that really makes, you know, an audio drama could never do. And I heard two different audio dramas and they can't break, they can't give me that breakthrough that a visual representation can. Yeah, we had that idea very early in the beginning. I think that's what what, what drove us to make this film because we saw, okay, there are three or four different um, adaptations in the past, but no mm-hmm. one tried to no one do it in black like and white, right? And so, yeah. Did they put in black and white anybody? Uh, was the first one the... Oh, um, hmm. I don't Monster think so. Die? I, I think know. it's 60 something, so... Yeah, I think that was in color. In color, yeah. Yep, yep. And it's... Uh, the thing is, is uh, I've seen a lot of H.P. Lovecraft movies lately that are in black and white. <laughs> yeah. I was always thinking, well, why do they do that? Is it a stylistic choice? And usually it is, but, um, you know, the HPLHS are doing it in the time period of the story when it came out. Yeah, so, I, I love that concept that we have. Yeah, but yeah, that's, okay, a, that's a, really very all clever. about that. That we had to have some kind of a fresh idea to tell but, the core of the yeah. story. Yeah, yours, yours is not just like I'm going to be artsy here. <laughs> it's not <laughs> that, and I mean commercially, it's not a great idea to make a black yeah, and white, that's a pity. right? That's true. But on the other hand, you're making an H.P. Lovecraft movie, so it's not going to be a commercial success. I mean, what's the closest that's ever been is. I don't know, John Carpenter's uh, version of, you know, In the Mouth of Madness, I guess, maybe, something like that. You're not doing it for commercial success, necessarily, right? Mm. Yeah, uh, but this movie was made really for the fans. And, uh, absolutely. Yeah, just being a fan myself. It, 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 it 
struck me as a very nice companion piece to the Whisper in Darkness. Um, that one, I was surprised at how much the budget, if there is a budget, it shows up on screen, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with, with the, uh, the, the wasp that shows up that, that was just about what I pictured. I, I actually pictured ants when he describes the insects as being over plump, you know, uh, oh. Uh, recalling images of Formicula, I think was the oh, man. classic movie. I loved that as a kid. Yeah, Formicula. Yeah, Is it the so same scary. title in 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 English as well. I don't think so. <laughs> I think. I ah, think so. yeah, I think it's a German title. It's a classic with a it's black and white, and I think it's in Los Angeles. Them. And them. there are giant ants. It's called them. Ah, them. Oh, see, I see. Them. Yeah. 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 That movie. I picture. I, I didn't picture them that big. I also didn't picture the fruit that big. But I was like, "Damn, that's a big, that's yeah, a big bear." A big, uh, <laughs> it's a funny scene. It was also it, funny it, to shoot. What is when when you're writing the script for it? What 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 was your? This is the thing. Is I'm not sure. It sounds like you you eventually came up with an explanation in your own head for. What's going on with this thing from space, right? The color. In my head, it was kind of like radiation because it's killing things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like fungus because it, it kind of reminded me of the voice in the night, you know, that uh, Hodgson story. Really mm-hmm. horrific Hodgson. <laughs> uh, uh, William Hope Hodgson story. Oh my God, that thing's awful. <laughs> Awfully good, but awful. Yeah, so you also had the, the the notion that it's not really intelligent what is coming there. It's just yeah. Yeah, like a fungus. And I love that about the color of space because Lovecraft, I think, wanted to have an alien creature that really is alien, not some humanoid um, thing that is thinking similar to us, that wants to yes. destroy something or wants to conquer something, wants to rape women or what else. I don't know. <laughs> he, was so, annoyed, he was annoyed by the anthropocentric um, yeah. point of view of, his, uh, of the science fiction of his days. So he really still today, I mean, still today, if we look at science fiction today, most times I see very, very human... Um, Yeah, human-like um, aliens there with human with desires, human-like motives. Yeah. Yes, 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 and that—that's stupid. He he really hated this this issue. He said he wants to do something really alien, and I cannot imagine of anything more alien than a, 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 some kind of color. It's just an, an analogy. He says in the story that color mm-hmm. isn't the thing that that attacks or that do, does anything. So um, we, if I if I may um, come back to one topic that we mm-hmm. uh, started with is is what do you think guys is this story really his first kind of SF story or is the Call of Cthulhu which was uh, written before proto SF or is it SF because mm-hmm. of, of, of uh, alien life forms and stuff like that I have to admit that I have not read the Call of Cthulhu You know, the way I work, I, 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 when I do something, I do it completely. Um, now, <laughs> that's you, not did you one see the movie? I have not seen the movie yet. Oh. I have the movie. You have to see I, it. It's, it's awesome. I want yeah. to see it. I want to see it, but I, I have to read the book first. 
I mean, this, I mean, the Oscar first. went to uh, the artist, uh, I think, two years ago, mm-hmm. and I, I think Call of Cthulhu by the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, uh, Sean Brainy and Andrew Lehman, they made a better, better silent movie, 1920s style, than the artist. Yeah. Yes, mm. but it's yes. my just No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I have to agree then. <laughs> I, I have not seen, I've not seen either. No. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, just just uh, the the Call of Cthulhu because it's uh, a very it's a good project. They put yeah, well, so much well, faith I mean, on it. Perhaps because yeah. because I'm a director, I can't you know empathize with a stupid actor that doesn't yeah. want to make <laughs> talking <laughs> movies because it's a silent actor. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't yeah, like. I, I think we uh, we talked about this on our podcast uh, weeks ago um, that the Oscar does not go to people who deserve it. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's a popularity. Contest. Yeah, it's a popularity. But back to the topic. Um, anyway, uh, is the the color of the space? Can we say it's SF? Oh, I, 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 think, yeah. I think it is, especially in in that it's about an idea of mm-hmm. of of what an alien would be like. And I was thinking, you know, what you were saying about, about what aliens show up. And if you think of like Star Trek, the original Star Trek, there's one episode where there's an actual alien that's pretty much alien. There's a couple that are also, there's one with the uh, alien flapjacks or (laughs) pancakes, but that's pretty alien as well. There's some Mm -hmm. spores, you know, here and there. There's a, there's a cloud of gas. But actually, those are all sort of weak episodes, and they don't really pay off in mm. in the, the way that you'd like them to with with a good idea. Um, but the one I'm thinking of is the one with the Horla, right? Um, the Devil in the Dark, I think, is the one. Yeah, it's called. In that case, we've got um, a a monster in the in the dark. It's killing people, but that's because the miners have been, you know, killing its eggs, right? Mm-hmm. Its eggs are like shiny spheres, and they've been they've been disturbing them and destroying them. The Horla is a silicon-based life form. It is not evil. It's just mm-hmm. alien. Mm-hmm. And in that story, we we get a sense of what an alien life form could be, other than you know human-shaped, wearing a you know a prosthesis on its nose. <laughs> um, and in in doing that, it's wonderful, but it kind of defeats the purpose of a lot of science fiction is not about, you know, the aliens are not really about aliens. They're really about, about people. And it's just, you know, it's about racism or it's about, you know, social movement or upward mobility, whatever it's about. It's it's something really about people, but Lovecraft is going the other way and he's going the way, uh, I mean, even Wells, you know, in the war of the worlds, those aliens, they're really, they're alien in, in a sense, but, the whole purpose of the story is to make us think about uh, colonialism and, mm. you know, the evils of crushing other people and planting, you know, your crops and burning down those forests so that you can make it more like your world. Um, that's, it's sort of, it, the purpose is for the aliens there is not, is not to make them alien. It's to make them uh, just alien enough. Mm, Whereas yeah, this true. one, He's making a point, I think, about his, I mean, it all goes back to his cosmic horror ideas that you look out there, you see all those, he mentions the stars, right? Deneb and what was the other one? 
He mentions specifically a couple of stars above the mm-hmm. well. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And their distance from the Earth is so great that it blows your mind. If you can grasp it at all, your worldview will be devastated. If you cannot, if you are not devastated by it, then you do not understand it. You are just taking the fact in and ignoring it because true understanding of that fact will destroy any worldview that is based on, you know, living on a planet uh, that's, you know, the center of the universe. And this is yeah, I think Lovecraft is some kind of, uh, for me, it's a cor- corrective, uh, some some kind of um, a different point of view. Because, yeah, as, to- as, you, as you've told, most science fiction stories deal with uh, um, our civilization and where we stand and what is going wrong and, and so on. And that is very important and very good. But I think we need H.P. Lovecraft to do this because we can't only think about ourselves in this way. We, there needs to be something that pulls us back back down to to earth uh, to the ground. That not not everything is is um, dealing about us. It's not, not everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John John W. Campbell gets most of the credit for for creating the you know first alien that's really alien in who goes, who goes there. there. Yeah. Uh, AKA the thing, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And. And it's fabulous, fabulous story, better movie, much better movie than the first movie, much better movie than the story itself, um, better than the 1940s version as well. But what you do get in that is is a sense of an alien alien, right? But you also get the sense of it's doing the horror thing as well. But there's one thing that it's not, I mean, it does a little Philip K. Dick sort of, you know, who's who and what's what and... Uh, how do I know I'm really me? And how do you know he's really him? That that's that's all fun and good. But what what this one does, which it, of course it did it before that, it also does this thing where you say, um, it's insidious, right? You don't know. Yeah, what, if, what is like, it? <laughs> yeah. Is it inside? Is it inside the water? Seems to be. Is it inside the rock? Seems to be. Is it, it when that when they flood that that valley? Is Arkham going to be infected in the water supply? Are you going to, you know, get a bottle of uh, Arkham Springs water and <laughs> start glowing at night? <laughs> Don't then yeah, turn gray. Have to wrap your head um, around your mind, your mind around the color of the space because yeah, it's so many different things at the same time, and I love it because yeah, it's, it's not you can't say this is the color of space. It's, it's so many things at the same time. Yeah. It, it, but it, it, it's got this, you know, it, we had this fear of radiation for a long time. You can't mm. see it. You can't touch it. Mm. You can't tell. You can't even know it's there without, uh, you know, an audio detector uh, making a little bleep every time, you know, it, it detects something. It's there, but we don't know it's there mm. and and until it's too late. And yet it does the same, you know, uh, radiation also plumps um vegetation. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, I thought I thought it was uh, sort of his. It, it's it's kind of like a nuclear contamination story before Definitely, nuclear yes. mm-hmm. contamination, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it, I was thinking of uh, Ark, uh, not Arkham, the um, uh, the valley. What's this valley? Do we? Does it have a name? Yeah, it's called the the blasted heath. Blasted yeah, heath the blasted, 
Yeah, I also love that. The that, valley like, north of of Arkham, it it it's kind of like Chernobyl. Right? Yeah, <laughs> just sort I, I don't know where took the, this from because in his time, times, um, well, there was the first World War and um, and so on. But I don't know. He didn't have the images we had, or we have or can have. Um, yeah, but I thought as well that, that it's very interesting that that he some kind of in some way in some way predicted what could be possible later with you know nu- nuclear bombs and so on. We can totally it, it, it's great you know it's great art when you can read in a lot that he couldn't have put in there right he mm-hmm. he didn't look at something and reflect it out but you can see the skill like the fact the very word blasted Heath he picked that out of Macbeth was it Macbeth mm-hmm. yeah, it's Macbeth, was Macbeth right? and Milton he picked it out of Macbeth and said this is the line that is going to help me give this picture I want to pick. Mm. Uh, and it, 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 it's wonderful. I mean, because it, it makes us think of witches, right? Because that's where the blasted Heath is, is where the, the battles just take place, taking place with the three witches who are predicting the fate of these people. That background, just in those two words, the blasted Heath, combined with the very abandonment of, of the witchy sort of part of Arkham to go into the science, the horror of this story is not, you know, uh, some. It's not some magical demon. It's reality, just a reality we cannot um, fully fathom yet, or maybe never can. Because I, I, I was thinking of that rock as is. It's kind of like um, uh, what's uh, a dry ice. You know, it's like it's <laughs> evaporating. It's mm. hot. You touch it. Uh, dry ice will burn you, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So what, what things uh, in the story that you didn't like, or is it is everything for you as well? Um, it's you know, one of his best stories. It's creepy. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like being creeped. I like. I didn't like. <laughs> I didn't like. I didn't like the idea of going to bed after reading it because it <laughs> it it's too insidious, right? And it's good to read during the daylight is what I'm thinking. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> it's horrific. But it's a masterwork, obviously. It is, and and he admitted his uh, on his own because he said it's one of my best stories. Even it's the best story I ever written. So it really was. It's arguable. I would say yeah. it's arguable. And when, yeah, when I, as well. When I read the story, I was I fell in love um, immediately. So uh, yeah, there was the idea how to make this into a movie. <laughs> And when I read it first, uh, uh, I was was really freaked out by the the images of the moving plants with no wind, and the mm-hmm. uh, the, the animals. Kind of anim- like the willows too. By yes, 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 and and it's it, it's coming from the willows. This image, and also the um, the thing that we first said about mind control that the mm-hmm. color could be some some alien mind controlling. Um, the family has the habit of stealthy listening during the night, uh, waking up all night and watching into the dark, into this luminescence. This is so great because he, they cannot escape by by any chance. They mm. are, they have to stay there for some reason. And, and then um, the mother turns mad and he puts her up in in the attic. In the attic always lies the the, the horror and the monster, and mm-hmm. and they are talking in this strange voice all this is so atmospheric and he said um, in, a, in a letter of, to a friend he said that this story is more an atmospheric study and um, mm. the, the thing he, 
he said uh, to J. Vernon Shear in October 1931, it's about really Arthur Mackens, the white people. The lack of mm. anything concrete is the great asset of this story. This is mm. the thing that we experience here in the color. I agree. It, 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 the thing is, is, because it is a study, you know, I'm, Lovecraft was always trying to get mood right. Yes. That was the main thing. Mm. But the thing is, is he backs it up with, he doesn't just make some junk up, right? So, for example, I'm not a big fan of Dreams in the Witch House. And I think the things that I don't like about Dreams in the Witch House are also here. But because the effect is, <laughs> in Dreams in the Witch House, there's a lot of comical sort of things to me, you know, like Brown Jenkin, the, I mean, and the fact that the narrator is completely oblivious to the fact that he's, he should definitely leave that house right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's got a sort of reverse, uh, he, he breaks the effect that he's going for, um, there. And, you know, I'm not, I, I like the science part of this more. This has the things, uh, in that it's a character, it's a mood study. The plot is, it's all backstory, right? There's no action actually <laughs> happening on screen, which is, uh, you've done it. You've done it uh, in your movie version. You've you've actually shown it, but you've also got the framing story, which adds a little bit of uh, to the to the action. But with Lovecraft, typically, you know, you've got a narrator who's recounting the events that have previously taken place, um, and we don't really have a character who we you know can follow on the adventure. Yeah, yeah. Just, that's the same problem with the movie as well. I would say that most people who are not familiar with the original story have some kind of issues with, with our film or it's not easy to, to to enjoy it because normally you get a, a strong hero figure character. Tom Cruise in a spaceship yeah, fighting yeah. <laughs> well, some, someone else. That's not this kind of story. Someone. Whisper in Darkness it does the exact same thing. You know, you've got a guy who's sort of passive and waiting for things to happen. And that's actually how life is. But yep. Lovecraft stories are especially that way, you know. <laughs> so it's it makes it it makes it a I, I mean, as a reader of the story, I think your adaptation is wonderful. And and the reason it's so wonderful is because it does something uniquely with film that cannot be done in the audio drama. It cannot be done um in you know, text on page, mm. right? It takes the, the strength of a visual medium and gives it, uses that strength to leverage the story. Um, in, in, you know, it's not, a sup it's not superior to the story, but it is a superior achievement in film adaptation of the story, you know, if oh. you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, the, the, the story itself is wonderful. And then if you... If you go to a movie adaptation, what basically what you can do, in my estimation, is generally you can screw it up, or you can not screw it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and sure, you don't sure. you don't screw it up because you you stick to the story. You don't you know uh, say it was all a dream. <laughs> you don't say uh, <laughs> you know, the, the changes you make don't hurt the story, and they actually complement it, especially in the, in the visual department. But they also complement it in the resonances that. Um, the fact that the story is were now being read almost a hundred years after it was written um, doesn't allow us. You know, we, we we would have to say why is the why is the main character uh, in the nineteen thirties uh, 
talking about some events in the 1840s. Why isn't it set in the present day talking about events in the mm. 80s, right? And I was a bit un, uh, ambiguous, uh, not ambiguous, uh, unclear. What, what is the set, the present setting of the movie, by the way? Uh, is it's it the 70s? The 70s. It's 70s. I I thought because uh, the car looked relatively 70s, mm-hmm. but didn't it didn't seem to matter that much except uh, I guess in the timeline of uh, the GIs and the um, and the Am. I guess Am was the is it the guy the. You kept the names pretty much the Armin, same, right? Amy yeah. Pierce, Armin. Armin Pierce, mm-hmm. right? Uh, then the gardeners are now the gar- gardeners, right? Yeah, we, 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 there were there were different um, reasons to do that. One thing is that I felt it would feel more creepy, and we would maintain that, that creepiness of the original story if we would bring it closer to. The now to the nowadays um, mm-hmm. in the seventies. It's only thirty years ago when they constructed that um, uh, water reservoir, that that dam, uh, when they mm-hmm. built the dam, and so it's quite close to two thousand fourteen or two thousand ten yeah. when the film was released, and you can feel okay. This this could be that out there is a, some kind of a water reservoir, and there is mm-hmm. something in it that didn't discover the it, and now. It's, it's yeah, it's uh, everywhere. <laughs> it's in the water table. It's it's outside the water table. It's in it's in your tap. It's in your bottle. It's in your in your yeah. gut. Um, uh, you guys uh, both heard the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast on this. I I I'm always afraid to listen <laughs> to their show because they do such a good job. But one one thing they pointed out that I thought was really nice was uh, that the the Gartner family um, father. His name is an anagram of human. Human Gardener. Yes. Human Gardener. Wow. This is the Garden of Eden man in the <laughs> garden. Right. This is that's H.P. Lovecraft doing great work there. And I there mean, is, all the characters have biblical names, right? There isn't. There's many biblical references uh, to different stories of the Old Testament, and Robert M. Price worked this out, and then. Uh, and an essay, a biblical ascendant no, for the color out of space. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you read it um, very carefully, you see many things there have a, a biblical expression. And, um, well, the flood doesn't wash away the sins because the flood uh, under the water still remains of the colors and wow. it's going to, to mm. poison everything. So, um, and the, the stone is hit by, uh, um, by lightning six or seven times. Mm-hmm. Right? right? And it, right. Um, the, this, this clearing lightning always comes up in Lovecraft stories but doesn't destroy the... Well, we cannot use category, categories like good or evil for the color because it has no uh, it's no evil ethics. for man but it's, it's evil for man but it's towards totally, reality yeah it's totally neutral so the the attempt to destroy the evil let's say it this way with the flood with the lightning um doesn't have any effect mm. the other the other um thing that i was thinking about with regards to names is am in the story he's always called am um is also uh, re- reminiscence of God, because mm-hmm. God in the Bible says, "I am, I am, I am, I am what I am," <laughs> like, <laughs> like Popeye, right? Um, I am what I am, and all that's all that I am. 
Um, he is the being, right? He is am, he, he he am himself. Yeah. Um, and uh, although our narrator doesn't, uh, our our uh, am character doesn't have you know godlike powers, um, I think that that's actually resonant as well because God d- doesn't play much of a role in H.P. Lovecraft's universe, right? <laughs> no. The punishment no. is not fitting the crime because there was no crime and. Yeah, the punishment comes anyways. Yeah, it's just happening, and I think that's that's what what is so interesting about um, most of his works, and particularly here, the the nihilism that you can just feel in in yeah, in every se- second or third sentence, the, mm. the things are just happening, and you can't do anything about it. The indifference of cosmos towards mankind. Yeah, mm. I I I think a lot about why the comet. Or I I I want to say comet because they say meteor. I want to say comet because comets get re, they reduce their size as they you know come mm-hmm. closer to the sun. Um, and it, when it hits the earth, it reduces its size. You know, so I want to say comet. I know it's meteor, but um, a meteor is just a, a rock that's you know going through the atmosphere. So could be from a comet rather than uh, mm-hmm. an asteroid or whatever. But when it it comes down. I want to say it's there for a reason. It didn't come by accident. And the reason I want to say it did that is because it's reproducing itself in some way. It's yeah, like a life cycle. Yeah. Right? That's the same case. Mm-hmm. I think it's only one or two sentences. I think the first time I read this story, I, I didn't grasp that too well because I was sitting in the train and I think somehow I, I missed that part. To fifty percent, I wasn't sure in the end what was happening there. But then I reread that part, and it was clear for me. Yes, it's about this thing is reproducing itself there, and it, and, it yeah. shoots off. It, it shoots, you know, the color shoots out of the well into the sky. Um, three or four blasts or something was it? Mm-hmm. Um, those, those I'm thinking, those are the babies. <laughs> it's reproduced <laughs> yes, yes. itself, right? And they're off on another cosmic journey. And then it goes, makes us think about at the beginning, you know, that plastic rock. Is, is that a housing? What is that? But inside there's a sphere or a capsule, right? Mm. Is that stuff inside the color? Is that the, 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 you know, like it makes you think. And of course there's no answers. And Lovecraft doesn't, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, he gives, but he gives the traces. That's that's nice. Absolutely. That after all the things that you can't really wrap your mind around, that he gives you here in in two sentences a small idea what this thing could really be, and yeah, that's that's very nice. Yeah, it makes you makes you think, makes you. Yeah, it also makes it beautiful because yes. Um, perhaps you've seen the film. It's an independent film, also with a very small budget. It's called Monsters. It's yeah, about, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a great Mexico, one. And at the oh, end, yeah. it's a very Lovecraftian moment for me because you also see these these aliens, and the the, the message of the film in the end is kind of the same, like in the color of space, but not that creepy. But it's yeah, it's about life. This thing is just reproducing. It, it doesn't well, care yeah. about us. It's just reproducing. It, it's all about perspective, right? So from the yeah. human perspective, it's horrific. It's horrible people. Uh, and and evil, right? But from the if if we were imagining the you know the God's eye view, if there was one looking down at the 
at this situation, you say, business as usual. Yeah, right? that's so strong about this story because you can feel like, yeah, this is the aunt's perspective from the perspective of an, of an aunt or some kind of a smaller um, life form. We Oof. are like the color of space in some way. Yeah. So they're cosmic bug spray. Destroying their So this is what we said before, that you have to expand your perspective, perhaps to understand mm-hmm. more. Yeah, And this is a thing in Lovecraft stories uh, all the time. Think about From Beyond and, mm-hmm. and, and that's, stories like that's that. A, again, another story I was thinking of uh, with regards to this one. It, it's, you know, it's there, it's just, uh, and it's 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 it, it's insidious, right? Yes. Yeah, but I think it, this is probably the best story that that does that thing uh, in terms of perspective. I think you're uh, right. Shifting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's the right length too. It's interesting. Um, your adaptation is about one hour twenty eight minutes, something like that. Maybe just under ninety minutes. Um, uh, I think it's one hundred and seven minutes. 107. Okay, so it's uh, it's about the same length as the story, um, and it, it, were you constrained by the feature length? I'm always interested in the form. See, mm. I think novellas are the right length for science fiction stories, almost always. <laughs> and what happens in novels is people extend. Mm the story just to be action because it's it's it should be about the ideas but i'm always curious like i thought um masters of horror did pretty good with some episodes and badly with others in large part because of the length of the story (laughs) sometimes the story is too short and sometimes the story is too long because it's about an hour but Mm -hmm. most shows they're like half an hour 45 minutes that's it exactly right well, in our what, case, straight um, by the feature length uh, requirement, or what did you? What did you? Did yeah, you aim? Um, um, in our case, we thought we could do this t- to make a sixty minutes film. So mm-hmm. that wasn't wise because, in in retrospective, it was good that the movie turned out to become a ninety one hundred minute um, long feature. Feature film. length is, is yeah, much more yeah. marketable. Yeah, but uh, back then we were. So film students, and it was only about making our um, final exams work at that point. And so we thought, yeah, a 60 minutes movie that would be manageable, or 50 minutes. And I wrote. Does not look like a student film? I have to tell you, it does not look like a student film. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we we couldn't do it with the, the university, so we um, decided to uh, write our final exams and make the movie afterwards. And it took us three years, so. Yeah, that's probably why it looks much better <laughs> than most um, oh. student films. Um, yeah, well, what, 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 what I wanted to say was um, that the script was written for a 60 minutes um, film, but somehow it turned out to become longer. So, yeah, it was coincidence. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. I, I, I can't imagine taking on a task that, that big. How many years did it take to complete? Yeah, I think three years. Um, I wrote yeah. the script in 2007, I think. And then we um, started in 2008. When did you read the story for the first time? Was it years before that? or? Uh, pardon? When did you read the story for the first time? Oh, um, 
Hmm, good question. I think it should. It has to be 2006 or 2000. Yeah, 2006. I think. And did you say gotta be a movie, or did you just uh, say great story, and then later on you thought of it? Well, in fact, it was. Yeah, suddenly. Uh, I mean, I was working together with with Jan Roth. He's the co-producer of the film. We both were students at the. University of Media here in Stuttgart, and um, he is the big H.P. Lovecraft fan. He introduced me mm-hmm. to the books and the stories, and he gave me one of the um, yeah collected stories books. And That's I was reading, friend. reading, and reading uh, on the train um, on the w- on the way to uh, the work, and we were working in a visual effects company. And when I finished reading that story, I I stepped out and went into office and the first thing I was talking about with him um, was this, this story, how much I loved it and he, he as well. And we knew that we wanted to make a film together for the final exams and yeah, we, we just um, started thinking about um, what could we do. And I think at the spot, at the same time, uh, we developed that idea with making it black and white and giving the color a color. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. the uh, did you did you like the, the trust color? Um, by the way, I I I don't know. I was thinking <laughs> about why is it that color? And <laughs> yeah, I that's a funny if, uh, question. I think it actually works good because you know in movies like uh, I guess there's Schindler's List is the one that everybody thinks mm-hmm. of where it's a you know a splash of color. Um, I thought you know that's uh, that's too nose on, right? I was thinking purple is sort of the traditional color people would go with because it's near ultraviolet or something. But I, I liked it. Yeah, I mean it was a surprise for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, green, funny, green is funny... what I usually use. You know, yellow, yellow or green. Cause yeah, yellow yeah. is apparel, and green is sort of. Uh, can be creepy. Yeah, you know? that, that was the story behind it because um, that's the funny thing. I, I always tell that I asked my my team. We did some concept artwork, and I tried out different cars. You know, the, the usual ones, uh, um, a very um, poisonic uh, green and yellow and so on, and blue as well. Yeah, but this. I was think I, I think you, you, you it's subversive, right? Because that's not traditionally a color associated with horror. Which is definitely, great, definitely. Yeah, and the reaction was uh, devastating. No one liked this uh, choice of color, really. And that's why I took it <laughs> because this <laughs> is like the it. one that that's like so. That's the r- it's wrong. You shouldn't make evil that color. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also the yeah one of the first uh, pink monsters probably in film history. I don't know. They <laughs> <laughs> just gave it away. Now no, now nobody needs to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Oh, no. But, the other thing is uh, interesting about science because um, the scientific um, stuff behind it. Because I, I didn't know when we when we shot the film and and decided to make it this way, but um, it was I think in Stockholm uh, in Sweden mm-hmm. where we uh, screened the film. That one guy in the audience, he's probably a scientist or probably just um, a science fan, but he told me that actually this color we took uh, we don't say the name again <laughs> it, well, um, it's, it's actually not a color and that's really interesting because it I made is, some I mean, it's not in the rainbow right yeah it doesn't exist it's like brown it's in our brain it and that's so exist. perfect it, it is it's wonderful because it you know if you think of it in the abstract um, you know I was thinking taupe you know <laughs> it's sort of one of those you know muddly colors you know, khaki, you know, something like that. It's not, it's not very, but, 
the thing is, is the brightness of the color, the vividness of the color, uh, in res- against you know the million shades of gray that are you know on the silver screen sort of thing, is a striking contrast. I've never seen anything like it before. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's and that's why it plays so well. I think yeah, as yeah. In, the, in the visual medium, it really works. Yeah, it's a fresh image that we, you haven't seen that before, and I wanted to achieve that because you know we, we have seen Sin City with uh, black and white and red, for example. That's mm-hmm. overdone. done. And I made back then I made some research about color theory and and symbolism and so on. And found out, yes, red is the strongest signal color um, for us because, well, because blood is red and and fruits are red and love and death, red. love, love and life and death. Yeah, yeah. So this, this is the strongest culturally, the strongest color you can pick. But it's also a very common color, and mm. the pink shade is the color you can't, you can't find very often in nature. And that was intriguing me back then. Back then I didn't know that pink is not existing, that it's just uh, <laughs> minus green, the negative of green. Because the, 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 the brain has to connect somehow the blue parts and the, the, the red parts in the rainbow to make it... This uh, reminds me um, of something very curious. Um, I, I've, I've heard it said a few times, you know, in ancient Greece, they, they had, there's something about the color blue being um, all avoided. Mm-hmm. But oh. the classic example is in the Odyssey, right? Where they always, this, Homer always describes the sea as the wine dark sea. Well, I've seen the sea in many a color, but it's never been red or wine colored, you know? <laughs> it's never been wine um, and it, it, if he consistently, you know, rosy fingered dawn, okay, I can accept that. You know, mm-hmm. the description of the of the sun coming up, you know, that's I can accept that. But the wine dark sea, that that's metaphorical. No, mm-hmm. has to be. But if we think, I mean, this is sort of the traditional solipsistic. Uh, uh, what if my my blue is your red sort of thing? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, what we what we can say is that for some people, my green is your brown mm-hmm. because you can't see green and red. You can't distinguish between green reds. Um, and for for people who are colorblind, all of this talk about um, you know <laughs> red and green and. That's a nice shade of green or that's a nice shade of red. Doesn't mean diddly squat because they can't see it. Is it known that H.P. Lovecraft could have been not colorblind, but yeah, um, like you said, the green red um, weakness? That, yeah, that is that's the most common form of colorblindness. I think is the green red um, distinction. Yeah, so is it known that he did have? I don't know. No nope. relatives or friends? No, never heard. Mm. I don't. Don't think so. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll never know. I mean, it's possible. That it was. <laughs> yeah, it could be a possible it, um, inspiration. It, it the thing is is if you've got if you've got uh, visuals and you can see stuff, um, it would never occur to you that there was red and green uh, distinction if you cannot see it. Right. The only reason that would you would have this difficulty is when other people are talking about something that you don't get. Yeah. 
And yeah. uh, I got to tell you, sometimes in math class, I was like, I don't get what you guys are talking about. <laughs> I think it's bullshit. I think none of this stuff makes any sense because every time I put down my answer, it never agrees with yours. <laughs> um, it's kind of like that. It's got this. Um, uh, I mean, the an you know the the animals that can't see red and green. Um, and the ones that can see infrared and the, the ones like us who can't. Mm. And I think we um, have the same thing with sound because I'm I'm, sure. not, uh, I'm not a good musician type of guy, so I don't have uh, the perfect hearing to hear, you know, the different tunes mm -hmm. and so on. And there are guys who, who just are awesome with, with listening and they can tell you yeah, they have everything about the music. Can, yeah, they can tell you what, what note is going without using... Uh, But the thing is, is this all comes back to something that I think is central to the story, which is science over uh, experience. I mean, the the way Lovecraft makes us feel is actually it's a trick, right? He, he's tricking us by using his description to form a mood. But actually, um, behind all of that is a belief that science is the way of understanding stuff. So his scientists don't make very good progress, but that's because they can't, because they, they, their materials are insufficient, their hypotheses are not um, sufficient for the amount of time, and then their continued testing is unavailable because the material's gone, right? Um, and there was nobody there doing a, you know, a day-by-day -day clinical study on that family, Uh, but underneath all that, he believes that science could explain that situation, given enough time and given enough testing. It would be like a life form or something, right? Some sort of natural phenomenon. Well, perhaps not. <laughs> We don't know. Well, the people, the people who say, you know, the, like they say it doesn't operate, is it a narrator who says it doesn't operate using Earth's laws, but it operates using laws. Mm. Right, physical laws. They're not Earth's physical laws, but they're physical laws. So when we say like dark matter and dark energy, those are placeholder words for unknown science. But mm. what we can do is see that we can detect it. And it's it's interesting that language is, you know, communication between human beings allows people who don't know about red and brown to pretty much believe, or red and green, to pretty much believe that red and green can exist. Mm. And uh, if I, I uh, deep down, I do believe math it actually works, and it's <laughs> on a high level. I I do believe it. I sometimes have difficulty with it, in the same way that some people sometimes have dif difficulty realizing that they are not the center of the universe. <laughs> the thing But is, though, I, that, that fundamentally, it's there. The things though that Lovecraft often, I think, is using the now it's probably overdone, but the the the, the trope that science. Is not really um, how to tell how to say um, it's not a door out of the problem that it's not really helping us, but because mo the most most times his scientists are failing, and so I don't know if well, but that's what real science is like, right? Is it's mostly failure, and in fact, failures are really useful in science because you know it's not something, right? Yeah, but still, do you think it's optimistic what Lovecraft is doing? No, absolutely, it's not optimistic at all. It's just, yeah. but but then again, we're not living in that situation, thankfully. Yeah, but uh, you're right. You're living in something science, similar. He's putting science above um, superstition and 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 
Oh yes, all, all this stuff. But even, I even think he's also saying it's, it's, yeah, he's it's clear that science kind of, is behind it, right? Yeah, yeah he's making the, some kind of a hierarchy that science is on top, but still, it's not enough because we. No, are, yeah. In the end, we we can't escape our fate. Yeah. But um, the key to understanding it is not uh, like some people default, you know, in Dreams in the Witch House, some people accidentally figure out a way to avoid having the problems uh, because they have lights, they carry lights to avoid, you know, but that just happens to be the right way. It's not like they figured out a way to avoid it. Sorry, if we were dealing with this story in reality, right, this story in reality, and we just discovered this comet or meteor had hit the Earth, uh, I would, you know, not want to put water over it myself. I would want to, like, figure out how to detach that portion of the earth and throw it into the sun. Maybe maybe not our sun, another sun. <laughs> another sun, yes. <laughs> Far away. Black and I think sun, in Lovecraft right? Works, um, that he's actually giving us a way out. And I think it's not science. And that's interesting because now we can talk about the new movie project. Because I think that the dream cycle stories in Lovecraft's body of work are giving us a hint about what he feels could be a way out or just another way and that is going to the dreamlands, going mm -hmm. with your mind into another dimension and leaving this place and there you could um, I think it's so beautiful in, in his story, it's one of my favorite stories Celeface, I think it's um, pronounced so in, in English about King Coranus. He's um, an old man in our world. He is, I think, sick or poor, and, and he's miserable and he's lonely, and he's dying here. And I think it's that's about himself. It's, it's H.P. Lovecraft, how he felt um, I, I think that's as right. a human being here on Earth. And there is an escapism into that story that you could, can have some kind of hope to to live on forever in another place. Where you can go back so to many your of childhood poems dreams are like all about those dreams. You know, like I, I was just reading one one of his poems yesterday to a dreamer, oh, and mm -hmm. and in that poem he names he said he says I think like in the fifth stanza or something he, he says ah, I I know where you are now he says to the dreamer you're visiting the peaks of Thok and the <laughs> the the valley or the vale of Zan or whatever it is and. And it's like, wow, he's saying that this alternate dreamland is another place that everyone can go visit. And Definitely. that yeah, comes that's, up that's again and that. again and again in his stuff. And yeah. it's so, so there's great. There's another place where we can be if we want to, if we are talented enough or if we want to be there, we could be there and live perhaps uh, forever there. And this is something um, that I think many Lovecraft fans, um, it's, it's often overlooked, the dream cycle stories. Because it's not horror. Because there he is actually giving us some kind of uh, hope, but it's not a 100% a, a hope. Because uh, I think in uh, the Dreamcast for Anon Kadath, um, Randolph Carter is visiting King Coranus. And we don't see that King Coranus has become a happy, a mega happy person. Because he's still, and I, I love that, he's captured in his childhood memories. He has um, homesickness. Mm -hmm. He he lives on forever there. He's a king, but he still cherishes his his uh, childhood days, and that's the same way H.P. Lovecraft I think felt about his own childhood days mm -hmm. in 
uh, New England. And this is something that is very human, that, that is missing in most stories of Lovecraft. Most of them are very nihilistic. But here I see some kind of, yeah, a human um, emotion about everything. And that's, that's what I would like to bring into the new film, which um, would be um, something that hasn't ever done before. There's no one. Yeah, who, almost, who, who, almost anything that's Lovecraft related is always horror, 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 horror. Um, but that's not all he does, right? I mean, there, it's definitely there. It's definitely yeah, there. But it's still horror his... in there. It's a dark story, but also it's dealing with those things. And yeah, I think, uh, I hope we can do it. So um, talking about this project, is there anything more to say? Like the crowdfunding? Yeah. What's the, what's the website? What's, that, what's the website? Yeah. That we need to go to to go give you money to make this movie. Uh, so should I say say it, pronounce it, or yeah, say it, say it, and we'll we'll uh, uh, link to it. Not so easy to. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's igg um, dot um, me slash at slash and then the Dreamland with um, a line between the and Dreamland. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and we can find that by searching on Indiegogo. Is that right? Yeah, you can find it there, or you can go on our website, which is um, the and then a line and dreamlands.com. The dash dreamlands.com. Yeah, that dash and dreamlands.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I, and your website for uh, DeFarba is D I E dash Farba, I guess, dot yeah, com. That's true. Mm-hmm. I, I saw that at the end of the movie um, after I saw uh, the final. Uh, they, they always do that talk now, about the movies. Uh, we, they always add extra scenes at the end of the movie. <laughs> um, we could also tell it, I don't know when you will um, put this out, but we will um, put Farbe on YouTube free to watch. Wow. Uh, starting this Wednesday and oh. till uh, Sunday for a couple of Ooh. days so that everyone who wants to see what we have done so far can have a look at it without having to buy it and then perhaps deciding to, to uh, support us. Well, that's, uh, I'm going to link to that um, on Wednesday. Absolutely. And it could be that we will do it another one. Um, Please do. Please do it <laughs> again. Cause we're, we're going to put this up after, oh, after. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, that, I think we did pretty well. Uh, Mirko, did we get through a, an eighth of your notes? <laughs> <laughs> no, not a bit. No, <laughs> that's Okay. <laughs> Have you got have you got some more goodies that we haven't covered? <laughs> I think so, but uh, you guys made a great job because um, talking about Defarbe was um, my main objective, you know. Well, it worked out. Um, it worked out, I, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I it was good to depart a, a bit and talk about um, the the broader perspective in terms of H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft and and cosmic horror. It was just just the way I thought it has to be. Oh, well, excellent. You, you, you guys, just like when we talked with Gary Luisi about a year ago, I just uh, gave, gave some hints on what's the impresario to put you guys together and then ah. let you talk. That's all. Ah, <laughs> that's, that's great. That's your that's plan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my plan. That's my master's plan. a matchmaker. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 